Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two of Belongings. I'm so grateful and happy that you're joining us for another season of conversations with inspiring, creative people as we discuss home, belonging, identity, and more. I've learned so much from our guests this season, and I hope you will also find these conversations as rich and meaningful as I did. Thank you again for supporting the podcast, for being here with us, and for supporting Karam Foundation. I really appreciate you being here, and I really hope you enjoy this season. Welcome again to Belongings. Welcome, Jamil. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Lena. I'm so excited to have Jamil Khouri here with us today on Belongings. Jamil is a friend and we've connected several times over the past, I would say, 10 to 12 years in Chicago. He's an incredible human being. He is co-founder and executive director of Silk Road Rising Theater. He's an acclaimed theater producer, playwright, essayist, filmmaker. Khouri's work focuses on Middle Eastern themes and questions of diaspora. He is particularly interested in the intersections of culture, national identity, religion, and belonging. Jamil holds a master's degree in religious studies from the University of Chicago Divinity School and a bachelor's degree in international relations from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He is a Kellogg Executive Scholar from the Kellogg School of Management, Northwestern University, and has been awarded a Certificate of Professional Achievement in Nonprofit Management. Jamil has been an artist-in-residence at the Joan Mitchell Center in New Orleans and playwright-in-residence at Tufts University, among many others. Welcome, Jamil. Thank you so much. You know, I'm really excited to talk to you today because you have a worldview coming from the theater background. But it's very similar to Karam's worldview and the worldview of people like us of belonging and how different kinds of people need to belong together. And this idea of intersectionality that I've always found so powerful in your work and the work that you bring to the theater and expose the public to here in Chicago. So I want to start with my first question to you is, can you tell us about what belonging means to you? Yeah, you know, that is such a complicated question because on some level, belonging is, you know, where we find ourselves belonging and how we form and construct and maintain a sense of community. I like to think, and this is related to belonging, (laughs) that, you know, sort of the philosophical underpinnings or worldview of Silk Road Rising fall within what you might call polyculturalism. And polyculturalism is different from multiculturalism in that it's really about cultural interchange and connectivity. And this idea that cultures are not static or fixed or, you know, etched in stone, but that we evolve and change and morph largely in relationship to one another. And I think belonging, you know, certainly for me, is really those spaces where interchange and let's say, evolution can occur. And so that cosmopolitan spirit where people feel empowered to contribute and to engage in exchange, dialogue, learning, sharing, those are the spaces in which I I probably most belong. <laughs> 
That is such an incredibly dynamic answer. And it's very different than what I think about belonging on the surface level and how a lot of other people have been talking about it in that so many people look backwards to feel like belonging. It's a past view or a nostalgic view. And your view is very similar to the kids that we work with at Karam House and refugees in that it's very forward looking. And it's when you say even the word evolution and exchange, it's something that's happening and you're looking forward to. And that's really powerful. The nostalgic view of belonging, I think, is also very meaningful. And there's a real power to that. Perhaps it's how my brain is wired, but somehow I'm always looking ahead. And I don't say that in a self-congratulatory way or in, you know, and so it's really less about a connection to the past. Obviously, the past always informs the present and the future, but it's that optimism. It's that Mm -hmm. or idealism that we can shape circumstances and we can shape destinies. And frankly, I mean, that's something that inspires me so much about your work and about Karam's work is that you're taking human despair and destruction, really, of a society, and you're building toward a future and a future of beauty and meaning and agency. And it's always something that has just resonated so powerfully, you know, in my mind. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. The second piece, really, we want to go into your map of home. And so now I'm very excited to see what you're going to draw. This is something that we've been doing with all of our guests and something that I started doing this with my family back in 2001. And during when I was doing my thesis at MIT, I started asking people from my family in Aleppo to draw specific places in Aleppo. And this is obviously pre-war, pre all of the crisis. And it was this idea of people drawing the same place and they would draw it automatically in different moments in time, which was very surprising for me. And that's where this idea of mapping home came from. And later I did this in camps with kids mapping home and then also with all of the projects that we've done. And I think that it's very... It's supposed to be a very simple exercise, so don't overthink it. The way that I've done it before is the floor plan. It can be any home that you think of. It can be past, present, future, and it could also be a drawing that is a symbol. So what we usually do is take about five to 10 minutes, depending on how much you need. And you can either talk and speak while you're drawing, or we can just, I'll wait for you to finish, and then you'll tell us the story of your map. Okay. I do have to put out there that this will probably be the worst illustration that you have seen. Okay, I'll take I'll take so, it. <laughs> I am not a visual artist. I wish that I was. It's just not a, a talent that I can come Believe me, almost every person tell, starts with this. So just you can move on from there. But people have done different things. Like people have done symbols. Some people have even done words. So you can do whatever you want. You can think of it as a fluid of a of an idea as you'd like. Okay. okay. All right. So go ahead. So what I'm going to draw, I mean, sort of maybe in the, in the symbol area, is a circle. And I'm thinking about sort of a circular setting for a conversation. So maybe I will also draw a series of boxes, and those boxes will represent chairs. So we have this group of people assembled. And they are sitting in a circle. And I think one of the great advantages 
of this kind of setup is that it tends to be non-hierarchical and it allows us to see each other sort of from all angles. And I'm imagining this home as a place where people come together to share ideas and to create. So it's kind of modeled on ensemble theater or on device theater, where we come in with an idea or a set of ideas and essentially create a piece of, of art, you know, a play or, you know, some kind of theatricalized piece, performance piece. So I'm thinking of it as a home of nurturance and support and also a place where people feel safe and supported and can take risks. And I think that's really important to have that ability as an artist or as a creator or as a thinker to fall, <laughs> pick yourself up, you know, brush yourself off and start again. So this is a space that whatever judgmental tendencies one may have, we check at the door and we really let the individual flourish as a collective. We tend to speak so often of individualism and collectivism or communitarianism as a binary, as somehow a dichotomy. And this throws that out. This is where we bring ourselves and we also connect to one another. It might sound overly aspirational. I don't know. But I have certainly seen and been in spaces like this. And I think some beautiful things can come out of this kind of connectivity. That's so great and powerful and inspiring. Can we see it? So it's really, <laughs> it's really a bad, <laughs> but you know, we have our circle yeah. and then we, yeah. we have our chairs. I don't yeah. dare venture to put people on the chairs because they would probably just be stick men. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, no, we, we get that idea. It's great. <laughs> You called it ensemble theater. Does an experience like this produce a work or is that a way of performing a work that's already exists? How does that work? Well, it can lead to that. And one of the things about theater that I, I think is so rich and that a lot of people may not understand, even people who attend the theater, is that unlike, say, you know, writing a book or writing an essay or a poem, you know, all of which are wonderful art forms. That's really a relationship between the writer and the reader, maybe the writer, the publisher, and the reader. Theater involves many, many people. You have a writer, you have a director, you have actors, you have designers. And you know, remember, a lighting designer, a costume designer, a set designer, a sound designer, they are all storytellers. So we are bringing together this community of storytellers a stage manager, a production manager, you know, producing, in my opinion, is an art form. And we are all coming together to tell a story or stories through our respective lenses. And I think that's one of the very powerful things. And then we invite people into a space in real time to hear that story or to receive that story. And so, you know, by definition, it is this highly participatory, interactive exercise. And writing, as, as we all know, can be very solitary. It can be very lonely. It can be very alienating. And, you know, there's a place for that. And we all do that. <laughs> and, and that can be, you know, wonderful in its own right. But this process that I'm imagining is really people coming together 
with maybe threads of a story or maybe mm-hmm. even words or a spark, you know, a, a singular idea or an idea that connects two ideas and then creating a performance piece. And we're actually going to be doing something akin to this this coming summer in Marfa, Texas, where a group of us are going to sort of plant the seeds for what I'm calling a new genre of theater. And that is aphasic theater, theater by and about people with aphasia. So my husband, Malik, who's also the other co-founder of Silk Road Rising, about three years and four months ago, he had a stroke and a heart attack. And he has a condition called aphasia, which is a language disorder, and apraxia of speech, which is a speech disorder. And aphasia is about finding words, and apraxia is about articulating words mm-hmm. or articulating the sounds. And so we are all converging on Marfa, Texas, in partnership with folks at Texas Tech University, where we're bringing people with aphasia, speech-language pathologists, neuroscientists, theater practitioners, theater graduate students, under the direction of director-divisor Sahar Asaf, who is from Lebanon and is now running Golden Thread Productions in San Francisco and is our friend and colleague and longtime collaborator, to really start imagining in this room with people quite literally coming from different places and centering people who are struggling to recover language to create theater that speaks to that experience and theater that also welcomes those of us who don't have aphasia or who are not aphasia care partners or caregivers or don't have aphasia in our lives to understand. So somewhat akin to theater for the deaf or theater for the blind, which are, of course, established genres or theater practices that look at neurodivergence or that look at various neurological conditions. We are sort of zeroing in on the realities of aphasia. And then how do we embody that in a performative and a, you know, theatrical manner? So this drawing (laughs) that I just did may be somewhat representative of this process that we are hoping to create in the Texas desert in July. I'm sure it's going to be really, really hot, but they tell me everything's air conditioned. Uh, (laughs) I've never been Mm -hmm. to Marfa. Yeah. So that, that becomes a home. That's just, and it's a temporary home. I mean, it's that the home exists with the existence of the people and the relationships and the connections that happen. And then they kind of go away. I think, you know, when you were talking earlier about the, I mean, of course, everybody who goes to the theater and sees a play knows how many people are behind the scenes. We are aware of that. But part of the magic of the theater is that you forget all of that and you're just in the space with the story, with the actual atmosphere that's created by all of these people. And you kind of have to forget all of the practical pieces that brought this magic together. And so what you're talking about now, even with this kind of experimental theater that's really connecting art and science in a very deep way and a very innovative way. You know, I've learned so much about the brain, and yet I don't know anything about the brain. You know, we're just sort of skimming the surface. And the relationship of art, so visual art, music, dance, narrative storytelling, theater, film, to neuro recovery and as a stimulant for neuroplasticity or the building of these mm-hmm. new neural pathways, which is absolutely essential if you've suffered stroke or aneurysm or traumatic brain injury, you are rebuilding 
a part of your brain is destroyed and those functions are moving to other parts of your brain. And that is a very complicated and extraordinary process, you know, that I, that I witness all the time. And so we want people to start thinking about neurological conditions, including degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, like Parkinson's, like dementia, so forth, through perhaps a more hopeful lens. I mean, Malik's situation, thank God, is an upward trajectory. So he keeps getting better. He keeps gaining language ability. And fortunately, his understanding, his cognitive was not impaired. So that's all there. But, you know, we also have cases where it's a downward trajectory. Mm -hmm. And yet we are learning, and particularly this young field of neuro arts, you know, that art can really play a significant role in either maintaining or improving or slowing down whatever the processes may be. And that, you know, we have this very complicated or this very complex organ <laughs> between our ears that is capable of absolutely remarkable things. That's really incredible to think about. And when you're talking, I'm thinking about how it's completely a different context going back to refugees, displaced children, the work that we do at Kedem House, because this idea of neuroplasticity and rewiring of the brain has been something that's been on my mind for a really long time as we approach kids that have witnessed and experienced the traumatic events of being displaced, whether it's direct or indirect, because everybody has been affected by the war and the displacement everybody who's Syrian. And I've witnessed that too. I've witnessed a different kind of rewiring with the kids in terms of what they do at Karam House, especially when it comes to the opportunities. We do have a theater club. So the opportunities of artistic expression, whether that's in theater or in writing or in visual arts, and even in the actual making of the objects in the maker space. One therapist came to visit Kerem House once and he told me when he saw the kids in the makerspace and everybody's super focused on, you know, the, there's like the machinery and everything had, they have to be really paying attention because it's dangerous. So you have to be following all the rules and have all the equipment and the protective equipment. And then you're focused on making the cuts in the wood or the cardboard or whatever you're making. And it has to be done very well for the thing that you're doing to work. And he basically was saying, this is therapy by in the makerspace because it's forcing these kids to be in the present moment out of necessity constantly. So you can't go and think about all the other things that when you're traumatized, you do. So it's forcing the practice of almost a meditation or a mindful practice while in the maker space. And that action actually rewires the brain and gives people confidence. It gives people space. We've also heard from a lot of kids this is the most common thing that happens at Karam House. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear it from kids actually expressing this, which is we couldn't even introduce ourselves or speak in front of our team or in front of anybody with confidence and even like speak openly. And by the end of a session, which is usually five to six weeks, sometimes eight weeks, we stand and we can present an entire project and defend the project and discuss other people's projects without, you know, there's an ability of just being able to speak 
openly and with confidence that is stolen really that I realized through our work stolen from kids that experience that kind of trauma. Well, you know, I mean, there has been so much wonderful work done and I just applaud all of the efforts you just described. I mean, I, I cannot even imagine the extent of pain and terror that these these young people experience on a daily basis and what they have witnessed uh, and what they have lost. But art as this curative sort of healing quantity, this power in their lives and to give them an avenue for expressing themselves and for articulating their world and their fears and their hopes, their dreams. I can't think of anything more critical, you know, more necessary. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, and I sort of hate to say this, but I was thinking about the kids who, who don't make it to Karam House. You know, I was thinking about the kids who are perhaps, you know, stuck in Aleppo or stuck Mm -hmm in humps or, and without these kinds of, of opportunities. So what you are doing is you're resurrecting, you know, their I mean, possibilities. Kids, kids, who, kids who are stuck in Chicago. I mean, kids yeah. are stuck at really everywhere. It's something that I've, especially post pandemic, it's kids everywhere who have just missed out on so much and been locked in in different ways. And I think that idea of rewiring, I think we lose that belief as adults for some reason, because it's not just young people, it's also adults, that ability of the brain to rewire itself and for us to heal. I think Malik's story and people like Malik, that's hugely inspirational because it's so deep and it's it's happening in front of you, but it's really a piece for everybody to learn from that we all can do this. So we have a program at Silk Road Rising called EPIC, which is an acronym for Empathic Playwriting Intensive Course. And it is a program that started for 6th through 12th graders in Chicago public schools, primarily schools in lower socioeconomic level you know, communities. And we have since expanded it. We're still very active in the public schools, but also senior centers, community centers. And we've adapted it for ELL learners, for English language learners with immigrant and refugee communities in the city. And I will tell you, to your point, particularly kids who have witnessed or experienced, you know, really horrific violence and social duress, the ability to construct a story, the ability to understand what goes into writing a 10 minute play, which is how this class, you know, which meets for multiple sessions in classrooms is designed. And then we bring in professional actors. And so the kids get to hear their words and see their plays performed by professional actors, it is truly transformative. And and I'm not saying that to praise our program, although I'm very proud of the program. But, you know, to add to your point about, you know, Chicago and how we can find these parallels with the experiences of many of the children that you work with and the pervasive sense of, of insecurity and, you know, just, you know, once again, despair. I really appreciate you drawing that connection. Absolutely. It's very powerful and it's very strong. And, you know, I think we're definitely aligned on the power of art and the healing power of art. 
right now I'm going to rewind. And so we're going to go to a little bit of the nostalgia space because sure. I want to ask you about your memories of Syria, of home, your Syrian side, if you could speak a little bit about that origin part of your background. Absolutely. So my father is was from Syria. He passed away a few years ago. And he was born in a village in north central Syria, about an hour from the coast, Meshtel Helu. I have not met a Syrian who doesn't know our village. Everybody knows Meshtel Helu. And he came to the U.S. in the early 1950s to study engineering and became a civil engineer and met my mom, who is not of Syrian heritage. Uh, she's of mixed Polish and Slovak ancestry. Uh, she was born in this country to a Polish mother and a Slovak father. And then, you know, they had three kids, of which I am the youngest. I have been traveling to Syria since I was five years old. So I have some recollection of my five-year-old self in Syria, uh, but really more as a teenager and then a young adult, I started spending much more time there and, you know, sort of summer-long trips. And then 1986-87, when I was an undergrad at Georgetown, I actually took off a year between my junior and senior years to do intensive Arabic language study at the Mahad. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great which at the place. T- <laughs> great, well, I love them, yeah. Which at, at the time was in Muhajirin and has since moved to Meze, I believe. And uh, But I was there when it was in the Muhajirin neighborhood. I actually went for six months and ended up staying 14 months. So wow. I was basically just like going for the taking off this semester to, re- you know, because I really wanted my Arabic. I mean, I was taking Arabic, but I thought, you know, I need to be in an Arabic speaking country. I need to be sort of, you know, surrounded by the language. And I wanted to challenge myself. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I mean, you know, I was quite young and I traveled all over Syria and, you know, got to meet with many people beyond my family, beyond, you know, sort of our immediate realm. And I fell deeply in love with that country. And I remain very much in love with it. You know, it is so special. It is so unique. It is this beautiful mosaic, you know, socially, culturally, linguistically, religiously, you know, when you look at the many, many layers, and yes, much of that has been destroyed, much of that has been, you know, unraveled, much of that, you know, has been erased. But nevertheless, the Syria that I will always hold on to in my heart and in my mind is that Syria that existed beyond a repressive, violent, invasive, you know, ever-present regime. And those spaces that Syrians carved out to block that out, to continue as if it's not there, even though it's always there. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hardest part about it, right? Is that loving so much of it and then knowing how much of it is just so, was so awful too, at the same time, like holding those two things at the same time while you're living there and still until now. And now what's wonderful about it, so much of that is gone as well. You know, Malik is from a religious community. He's, he's of an Ismaili background from South Asia. And there are obviously Ismailis in Syria. And many of the South Asian Ismailis traveled to Syria 
before the war, there would be these trips and they'd be like on Karnak buses, <laughs> this kind of thing and going around the country. I and they would t- heard Karnak in a really long time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had people tell me when they learned I was Syrian, you know, they'd want to, and, and they'd be like, we'd, we've never, you know, one gentleman was telling me about, he had like a, a baby girl and she was sleeping and a Syrian man got up and gave his seat, you know, cause he wanted the girl to be able to sort of stretch across the, and there were all these acts of really incredible generosity and hospitality and kindness. And that's what the South Asian Ismailis who I've talked to Syria about would share that they were so moved and they were so sort of kind of blown away by just the utter warmth and generosity of the Syrian people. And to think that these same people have experienced violence almost on unprecedented levels. I mean, when we think of modern history and still with, they're still able to demonstrate dignity and, you know, a sense of self and a sense of pride. I mean, that, that is something that we don't see a lot of in this world. And I don't know why my mind went to the stories of these South Asian visitors, too. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it always just was so special for me as a Syrian-American to hear that. And that is the Syria that I I think about, you know, the Syria that I traveled to, going to Aleppo, for example, and, you know, having friends in Aleppo, you know, having sort of connections who were friends of friends and friends of relatives and friends of people who were somehow involved with the Mahad or this kind of thing. And just their ability to bring us into their worlds. You don't see that everywhere. And I think that as Syrians, we have so much to be proud of and to hold on to with great fondness, you know, and a sense of awe almost. That in spite of anything, I mean, this is a country where you could technically be arrested, taken away, disappeared at any moment. Absolutely. I feel the sense of awe for sure. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, listen, we can be run over by a bus, right? I mean, you know, anything can happen on any given day. But I was always so aware of how precarious existence was. Mm-hmm. because of the ferocity of that state apparatus. And yet, there was all this other stuff. There was inc- there's art making taking place. Mm-hmm. There is people experimenting with food. <laughs> you know, there's this creativity. And it's it was part of a will to survive and thrive in spite of. Yeah. And we still see that today. And that's something that you can't destroy that spirit. It still continues inside Syria and outside. I want to move to Silk Road Rising. So I was reading some articles about you in preparation for this interview. And one that struck me was one from 2011. The Chicago Reader called you the theater activist, which I really love that title. And so I wanted to ask you if you could tell us about what is a theater activist and why are you a theater activist? Well, you know, we started the company as a response to the attacks of September 11, 2001. So there really was an activist impulse behind why we thought, okay, we need to look at representation 
in the U.S. context. We need to look at misrepresentation, bad representation, no representation, so forth and so on. So the desire to really uh, respond to the climate of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, anti-South Asian backlash that gripped this country and still does in any number of ways was, you know, we, we had a sense of urgency that we had to be part of changing the narrative. We had to be part of changing the story. And we weren't going to do that with propaganda. It wasn't going to be, oh, no, we're all angels. Oh, no, everything's perfect. Oh, no. You know, it was going to be stories that centered our voices and our experiences. And we were initially thinking very much about the Arab world, the Middle East, the Islamic world. And then we kept running into seemingly random references to the historic Silk Road, China to Syria, if you will, you know, these trade routes, of which, you know, obviously, silk was an important commodity, and also spices, we hear about the spice route. And so, but also the exchange of stories and beliefs and philosophical traditions and, you know, stories being translated from Mandarin to Hindi to Farsi to Arabic and the other way around and many other languages along the way and filtered through all these different prisms. And for 18 centuries, essentially, we had that legacy of the Silk Road pre-European imperialism, pre-French you know, and, and British colonialism. So a kind of polyculturalism, a kind of interchange that took place. Outside of Mesha, when I was a little boy, there was a silk factory <laughs> it, was, it was sort of a modest silk factory, but there was a silk factory outside of Meshta. And, you know, they were, were weaving silk. And I first heard Tarika Harir, I first heard a reference to the Silk Road, which Syrians are very proud of, by the way, that they were connected to this legacy that stretched all the way to China. And that there were Arab tradesmen who went all the way to China and to Central Asia and India and, and so forth. So we wanted to bring that to Chicago in a very 21st century diasporic way and look at the stories of Americans of Silk Road backgrounds. So Middle Eastern, South Asian, East Asian, and what connects us all and how people who aren't of Silk Road backgrounds can find their stories, their families, their lives, their challenges in our stories. So early on, and this is theater activism, uh, early on, you know, we said that we would have something called the playwright protagonist imperative or alignment. So let's say Arab American playwright, Arab American protagonist or central character. So you as an audience member are taking a journey with this person as they are, you know, struggling with whatever challenges life may bring them. And the human condition as understood from this very specific place. And from that specificity, we would find the universality, but we would be grounded in that specificity. And that was an activist response that we were going to shift the lens. We were going to shift the subjectivity, the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. And I've been to several productions at Silk Road Rising Theater, and it's just such a wonderful space. And it's a very special experience. You do feel it. You feel the intimacy of the productions and the audience and all of that. It feels like a, a home inside. Thank you. And, th and that means a lot. And that is something that we've heard 
many times from artists, particularly artists of Silk Road backgrounds and from audience members who will say, this feels like home, you know, or I can breathe and I don't have to be worried. I love the story of a play written by a Chinese-American playwright, Lauren Yi, who we adore, called Ching Chong Chinaman, which is, of course, you know, this very racist term that was used against peoples of East Asian backgrounds. And a, a Japanese-American woman who is an actor in Chicago, who we have worked with several times, received that title in her inbox, her email inbox. And she was immediately like, oh, my God. But then she saw within, you know, a second that it was sent by Silk Road Rising. And she said, all of a sudden, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> this now makes sense. Because yeah. the playwright was, you know, this was a satire about yeah. all of these kinds of racist assumptions about Chinese Americans and East Asians and really sort of poking fun in a very smart way at you know, these racist caricatures and parodies out there. But I, I was so grateful that she shared that story because she said the instinct was to be angry and then she could relax because she could trust us. Yeah, uh, that's what and, I was going to say. The trust level was just automatic and that's something you build with your community. And we always took that very seriously because I think that historically, the diverse peoples of the Silk Road, sometimes for different reasons, would stay away from anything that seemed, you know, representational, because they assumed that it was bad. They assumed that it was uh, racist. And largely because it often was, yeah. you know, these, these kind of Orientalist depictions. And it had nothing to do with Silk Road peoples. Mm -hmm. You know, it had everything to do with whatever the Euro-American fantasy, you know, or the, the exotic or the villain or, you yeah. know, who we're supposed to fear at any given moment. And we wanted to really press back on that, you know, or push back on that and challenge that, but also create a new body of representation and be part of national efforts. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're connected to theater makers and storytellers across the country who are changing the narrative, who are changing the story. And yet, yesterday, Ilhan Omar was kicked off the Foreign Relations Committee. And, you know, it's very hard not to think that has something to do with her being a Black African Muslim woman who wears hijab and is very firm in her convictions. And to me, that is a reminder that there's a lot more work to do that, you know, the sort of otherizing or banishment yeah. of her is connected to these larger challenges. Absolutely. I think I was going to just ask you about being here, you know, over 20 years after 9-11, because what you were talking about reminded me, we had a conversation with Leith Nakhli, who is a, also a Syrian actor, and the Shourami. And it's a very similar idea when you're talking about activism is that at some point he basically said, I'm no longer going to play the Arab villain on, you know, 24 or Homeland or all these like 
every time an Arab Muslim man is called to for a part, it's always the terrorist. And he just basically said, I'm never going to do this again. And it only changes when people like you are elevating the work of playwrights who are creating this kind of work and giving them a space to actually produce it. And then people like him who will just refuse to take on these roles. And it takes so much time. And, you know, what you're talking about yesterday with Elhan Ahmad, it's absolutely true. It's not just art. It's art and reality. And they mirror each other and they affect each other in big ways. So what I'd wanted to ask you is, you know, now over 20 years after 9-11, how do you think about this metaphor of Silk Road now? And what are the kinds of challenges as you think ahead? Because you started at a place and you made a lot of progress. And now we're still seeing more issues come up. Specifically for me, one of the things that I witnessed in the work that you bring to the theater is that idea of intersectionality, because there's also a part where people in these Silk Road identities silo themselves and also do other each other. And then you bring in these challenging viewpoints of saying, you know, this concept of intersectionality, you bring it up in very powerful ways through the stories to say, well, actually, we're not in silos and we are all together to be able to make real change. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I will often say we were born of a multicultural politic, but we quickly migrated to a polycultural aesthetic or to a polycultural politic for that matter. So the multicultural model, and, you know, we're grateful for it and we are indebted to it, but we have moved beyond it. On some level, and this is me being, you know, perhaps a bit cynical, reinforces silos. Now, in many cases, those silos were necessary, and they were strategic, and they served a purpose. But we don't want to get stuck in silos. And mm -hmm. that's where that connectivity once again, and that kind of that ability to see your story and my story, or, you know, me to see my story and her story is so key to us, you know, it's so key to our work. You know, in the 20 plus years, you know, we started out in what I would describe as a fairly lonely place. You know, there didn't seem to be much happening on this front, at least in an art making context or an organized, let's say, art making context. You know, we knew of Golden Thread Productions in San Francisco and they were the first. And so, you know, we were able to connect with them. And then we started connecting with others and building a national community to support artists, to nurture and, you know, cultivate new voices, new stories. And so we can speak of a movement and, you know, we will take partial credit for that. We have played a role in that, as have many other people. And Laith is a great example, you know, where we're actors and writers and designers and directors and producers and supporters and, you know, audiences would coalesce around stories that we were all yearning for, we were all so hungry for, and we couldn't necessarily imagine finding a home or finding a life. And I think in these 20 years, we've seen a very significant amount of progress and change. We are no longer responding to 9-11 constantly. We are no longer in this mode where we have to apologize or explain or distance or disown or, you know, and I think all of that happened. And this conflation of 
all Arabs or all Muslims or all, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, people felt the importance of saying, no, that does not represent us, that does not, you know, so forth. But also now feeling the ability to own the stories we're going to tell and to center the complexity of our lives and that there are rich feminisms within Silk Road communities. You know, there are queer people within Silk Road communities. Mm -hmm. There is sexual violence. There is domestic violence. There is child abuse. There is, you know, and we've taken on a lot of these issues and we've, you know, we've, we've paid a price at times because people in the communities getting angry or riled up. But we've always thought this is very important. This is part of healing. This is part of catharsis. This is part of moving forward. This is not airing dirty laundry. This is looking at the reality of people's lives and the immigration experience and the experience of becoming American and being transnational. And I, th- I think all of that, so you, you know, you reference intersectionality. I think for us, that was always a given, you know, that we weren't going to be gatekeepers, like this is the Arab experience or this is the Iranian experience. You know, because we all know gatekeepers, right? Yeah. We, all, we all know the people who want to have this sort of sanitized, polished <laughs> vision or view of what it means to be Syrian. Yeah. And it means a million things <laughs> to be exactly. serious. Exactly. So true. I mean, I love that. That's one of the biggest things that I love about Silk Road Rising is that when I'm going to go see something in the theater that me I'm going to learn and I'm going to be challenged and it's going to come from a sense of deep empathy. And that empathic thank you for that. That that empathic piece really drives our decision making when it comes to you know, what we want to put on stage. And I'm not talking about empathy in a sort of manipulative way. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, where once again, you can arrive at a story and a relationship to characters where you recognize a certain truth. You recognize something very familiar and something very honest. And that something may be very painful. It may be, you know, unsettling. But it is ultimately, we hope, it can be freeing. It can, once again, help us evolve. I like to tell the story of an artist we worked with from the Baha'i community. And she was a survivor of horrific domestic violence. And she wrote a beautiful play, very moving play, about get, and a very poetic play, about getting out, essentially escaping a very violent marriage to a man who was much revered in their community, you know, wealthy, prominent, high profile, respected, and very violent. And the incredible courage that it took for her to write this story and, you know, to essentially bring it to us And we like, I've referenced the cathartic power of theater. What I saw after performances of her play changed my life. I mean, changed really my relationship to the work. 
we didn't understand why we were selling so many single tickets because that's a very rare thing. Typically, people buy theater tickets in pairs or, you know, maybe four people or six people. But we were seeing a lot of single ticket sales. Well, we quickly learned why. Women were coming alone. And in the talkbacks, women would stand up and say, I'm experiencing that now. Now, we had put the word out in some domestic violence, web lists, and so forth. So we, we let it be known that we were doing this piece. I saw women in the lobby of our theater who I have never seen before, who were not regular uh, Silk Road theater attendees, exchanging phone numbers, giving phone numbers for shelters, for social service agencies, this kind of thing. And I would sit there and just the courage of the writer. And by the way, the abuser had threatened us and threatened the theater and threatened violence. And we actually had to get the police involved. He said he was going to come to the theater and, you know, harm people. And he did not, you know, thankfully. But that experience really taught me. I understood what we were doing (laughs) intellectually and also viscerally and experientially. I didn't understand it like that. Yeah. I didn't understand the depth of that. And I'm talking about women from all socioeconomic, you know, classes. And to hear that I, I'm in this situation, or my sister's in this situation, or my mother's in this situation, and that maybe this play was a catalyst for getting out. It's incredible. I mean, you do what you do, and you don't know what you actually unleash, and then you see it happening in real time. I can't imagine anything more powerful than that. And the ability to see one's story, and you know, sort of shifting gears to a different play, Yusuf Algindi's Ten Acrobats in an Amazing Leap of Faith. The senior pastor at the church where the theater space, he had since retired, but he remembered walking into the theater space after a performance. And there was a young Muslim woman in a hijab sitting alone. And the theater had emptied out. And she was the only person left. And she was crying. And he went up to her. He likes to say being a good pastor. You know, <laughs> he went up to her and he said, can I help you? Like, can I, how can I be of help? And um, she said, I've never seen myself on a stage before. You know, and this was in 2000, what would that be? 2005. And she was just so affected by yeah. the experience. And, and there's a young woman in the play who, who wears hijab and who has, you know, this very sort of almost fraught relationship with parents and community and Americanness and, you know, they're Egyptian immigrants and, you know, all of these questions where she's just, and religiosity and how she's perceived on her college campus. And clearly this young woman had an opportunity to experience her life through someone else's. It's incredible. I mean, that's what they say. Representation matters. It's almost become a cliche, but it's so real and so important. Jameen, I'm so grateful for your stories and for your work. Before we move to the rapid fire questions, I wanted to just note that we will be working together later this year with Little Amal, which I'm very excited about uh, Little Amal coming to Chicago and working together on that event. Well, I am really always honored, you know, to be working with Haram Foundation and with you, Lena, and your team. We were approached by the little Emil people. And of course, she's not too little because she's 12 no. feet tall. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> this 10-year-old Syrian girl who has been walking quite literally uh, the world beginning in Gaziantep, Turkey. And you were, you were yes. part of that initial launch. And her and her team of about 30 people are coming to Chicago at the end of September and early October. And we are doing an event on October 1st. We're pretty certain it's going to be at 4 p.m. And it's going to be a walk in the West Ridge community on Chicago's far north side. And the significance of West Ridge, uh, for those who don't know, is that it has a very large refugee population, including Syrians, Iraqis, Palestinians, Rohingya people. It is one of the most diverse communities linguistically, culturally, racially, economically, religiously in the United States. I think it's 72,000 people in 3.5 square miles. And we want to really leverage that community for a reflection on belonging and a reflection on home and little Emil finding a place where she is not fearful or can feel comfortable or welcome or, you know, somehow seen. Although once again, it would be hard not to see her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, She's incredible. <laughs> so we are, we are excited to uh, make that happen. And obviously, as more details are known, we will begin announcing those. But we're putting together a beautiful artistic team, and it's going to be a very special walk. Come rain or come shine, <laughs> and within Chicago, hopefully we'll have never good know. Chicago Chicago weather in October. It'll, hopefully, it'll be really good. Hopefully, it'll be yeah. a beautiful early fall day. Um, yes. Little Amara is incredible. We should bring Emir some time to this podcast. Oh, I should ask him. He's just wonderful, and yeah. I'm excited to work with you and your team. And we'll have a great event together. And people from this podcast will also be sharing all of that information when the time comes. So we're going to move to the rapid fire questions. One last thing that I cannot let this conversation go without mentioning is the way we met is something that I will never forget in how we met at, um, in the NPR studio. And I was speaking yes. on Jerome McDonald's, um, worldview and the great show on NPR. And you were in the room between, like, you were going to be interviewed after me and you sat with my mom listening to my interview and that's how we met and i just always think that that's an incredible incredible coincidence it's like a piece of fate yes serendipity is that what we yes said? yeah well it was also a great way to be introduced to your work and i remember sitting there with your mom and just being so impressed by the vision that you were putting out there and because if I, if I remember correctly, Karam actually had a life before the Syrian civil war. And there was a very intentional shift that you were going to, you know, really respond to the needs of Syrians. And yeah, I'm so glad that day happened. <laughs> so great. So rapid fire questions. The first one is complete this sentence. Home is where? Well, probably, as I said uh, earlier, you know, where we belong and where we find purpose. Beautiful. If you had to leave Chicago, what would be your top requirements in choosing a new hometown? Okay, so I want to think liberal progressive politics. That's usually <laughs> very important. A, a kind of cosmopolitanism. I really love the diversity of Chicago. And a, a robust art scene, art and culture scene, and food. Let's let's add food to that. 
Absolutely important. What's one piece of advice you would give a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? So do not ever lose sight of where you are from and who you are, but be very open to the new environment. Be very open to absorbing and to learning and to benefiting. Give us a list of three places that almost immediately feel like home. You know, it's interesting. I lived in Washington, D.C. as an undergrad because I, I was at Georgetown. And there's something about that town, or at least in the 80s, where I just immediately, almost from the first moment I visited, I felt like I belonged. I felt, you know, so connected. And not necessarily official D.C., but grassroots D.C. Mm-hmm. And that there was all this fascinating stuff going on. Damascus. And, you know, and as I said earlier, I lived there for a little over a year. I'd obviously visited many times before and since, but just a city that I immediately fell in love with and felt very much at home in and very connected to almost as if I'd had a past life or, you know, some, some kind of lived history in that city and just. I never stopped exploring Damascus. I used to take the longest walks. You know, uh, my relatives were very concerned. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I would get lost because there was something, the vibe was so appealing to me and I just kept discovering. And then I would also say the Algarve in southern Portugal, which has a Syrian, you know, sort of an Arabo-Damascene <laughs> uh, history. Malik told me that when we got to Algarve and we had been in, in Lisbon and in Porto and I'm, you know, big fans of Portugal, he saw me just relax. He just, he said, I've never quite seen. And all of a sudden, you know, we were taking tours and I was seeing villages that remind me of our villages and in, in sort of our part of Syria. And in the town of Faro, there is the Omayyad door, which was a great big door wow. that was actually brought from Damascus to El Ghar, you know, it was El Ghar in Arabic, so sort of the, the Western yeah. Andalusia, mm-hmm. and they call it El Garve. And uh, I just, I remember bursting into tears, you know, it just, I felt like I belonged. Yeah. What dish tastes like home to you? Kibbe. I love that. <laughs> It is the national dish of Syria, Syria and Lebanon. <laughs> I love kibbe. And it brings me to many homes, if you will. Um, Absolutely. But it is, it is my ultimate comfort food. What are you currently reading that you would recommend to your friends? I am reading a book by a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr, and it's called Falling mm-hmm. Upwards. I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr and his you know, kind of universalist spirituality. And Falling Upwards is really about the second part of our lives which people associate with illness or, you know, slowing down or this or that, or kind of, you know, winding down. And he's like, no, 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 no. The second part of life is where it all comes together and where we bring these threads, you know, we've grappled with issues of identity and we've, our work lives have somehow shifted and our priorities. And he's like, that is when the greatest spiritual growth occurs, but also that desire to, impart to others that we've acquired some wisdom, you know, we've acquired some insights and that the potential for doing good in the second part of life is one we need to unleash. So I'm just feeling, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm just feeling very inspired 
by the piece and his very beautiful way of of linking different spiritual traditions and spiritual learning as we think about, you know, getting a little older. I mean, I definitely need to read this book um, yeah. and need to put it on the list and we'll share it with all of our audience. And I think that, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. I've heard him on some, a few yeah. podcasts, but I haven't read any of his work. So I'll start with this one. Yeah, no, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Jamil, it's been such a pleasure to spend time with you today. I'm grateful for your time and for everything that you've shared and these powerful stories and grateful for your friendship. Well, that is entirely mutual. And it was a thrill to be able to do this and just, you know, to see you and also to, from my end, to just express how grateful I am, we are for the work that you do and for the voices you amplify and, you know, the lives that you touch. Thank you so much, Jamil. Thank you so much for being on Belongings. Thank you. Be well. Wasn't that such a great conversation with Jamil? I really enjoyed speaking with him and I always learn from him when we talk. Next up, we have the conversation I had with Mejid from Istanbul. My conversation with Mejid was so interesting because... When he talks about events and memories as a young child who lived through them, worry-free and in the moment, he reflects back in a very different way. Knowing what he knows now about the Syrian revolution and the true reasons his family fled home, he has a deeper understanding of his emotions, the sacrifices of his parents, and his sense of belonging. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mejid. Hi Mejid, welcome to Belongings. Hello. We're so happy to have Mejid, a student at Kerem House, Istanbul. I'm speaking to him live here, and we're excited to share his story and his journey. My first question for you is, can you tell us what belonging means to you? Belonging to me is where a person finds safety in their life. Along with safety, it's also about acceptance, feeling like the people around you accept you for who you are. Yeah, I think that being accepted and feeling safe are really important pieces of finding belonging. One of the pillars of this podcast is having everybody draw a map of home, a map of belonging. And so we want you to draw today a map of your home. It can be an imagination. It can be in the past, the future, whatever you want. It can be a symbol. And then you'll tell us a story about your map. And we can have about five to 10 minutes of you drawing to do this. Yeah. So you drew a floor plan of your home, a home in the past, as I understand. Can you tell us a little bit about this home, where it is, and why is it special? What is the story behind it? This house was one of the places we lived after the start of the war. It was one of our relatives' home. This was one of the places we had good memories in, despite the fact that we had fled our actual home to this place. But we were young, so we didn't really understand what was actually going on like our parents may have. At this home, we felt some joy again after not feeling it for so long. Our relatives did a good job trying to make us have a good time. It could be that our parents weren't as happy as we were. Can you tell us about these different rooms, what you were doing in them, and were you there with your cousins? This was my aunt's house, so they had a living room 
and right off of it was a balcony. A really big one. I remember during the summertime, our parents would sit in the living room and we would fill a large container with water and swim around and cool off with our cousins. That sounds like so much fun and I can understand having these kinds of spaces to have fun with your relatives and being safe would make a big difference, especially in having this journey of coming out of a place that was not safe, which was Aleppo during the war. Thank you so much, Majid, for this, and thank you for sharing this memory. It's really beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from Syria to Turkey? We left our home very early at the start of the revolution. We thought it would be a short while, and we'd be back. So we spent a little bit of time at my aunt's house, then some time at my nana's house. We kept moving from one place to the next, until we realized this might take longer than we thought. At this point, my dad had spent some time without a job, so he started looking but couldn't find anything. He then started looking in Egypt and other countries. I remember one night, it was Ramadan, and my dad got a phone call. It was someone he worked with in the past. He told him he was in Turkey, establishing business. He offered my dad a job on the spot. My dad said he would consider it and get back to the man. A few days later, my dad told us that he was going to take the job and move to Turkey. And after a while, he would bring us over. True enough, my dad spent six months in Turkey before returning to Syria to help us get our papers and passports. Then we all left the country for good. That's a story that sounds very familiar to so many refugees that had to leave Syria and come to Turkey and find new opportunities for a new life. Yeah, we were very fortunate not to have lived through very heavy trauma through the war. I mean, we saw some things. I remember being with my brother and there was a bomb explosion at the building right behind our school. We were young. We forgot a lot of things when we're young. But these are a few things that you just can't forget. It was hard, but definitely not as tough as what others had to go through. I think it was because we left Syria early, so we were lucky. How did you find Karam House? I was at home, quarantining during COVID. I've always been someone who loves to create little knickknacks and gadgets. My mom saw the ad about Karam House on social media, and she said that since I'm at home and I have some free time, I should enroll, especially since it was online at the time. I said, sure, why not? So I enrolled and it's been amazing. Even though it was online, we still created so many cool projects. Can you tell us about one of your favorite studios that you did at Karam House? One of my favorite projects was for the studio, Architecture for Society. It made me realize that I actually really like architecture. My group chose the bus stop project. We started analyzing the weakness of the bus stop and its strengths and how it can be improved based on who was mostly using the bus stop. In the end, we also added elements to the bus stop so that people who are waiting didn't feel bored, even if the bus was late. It was a fun project for sure, even though it was online. That sounds so good. I really think this project was really good. 
Do you want to study architecture? I liked architecture, but I also have to think about career trajectory, given where I am. A lot of people have told me, studying architecture in Turkey might not be the best choice. So I'm still considering my options. But yes, if it was up to me, I really liked architecture. What are your hopes for the future? I really want my family to be happy. I also really want to make my family proud because of my success. My family really sacrificed and struggled because of the war. So I want to find a way to make it up to them. When we were young, we didn't really understand what was going on. But looking back, I know now that it was a hard time for them. Those are really big hopes, and I'm really proud of the fact that you want to have this kind of responsibility for the future and take care of your family and your community. And I think it's very honorable, and I hope that you find all of the success. Now we're going to go to the rapid-fire questions, the questions I ask every guest of the podcast. And we're going to start with the first question. Complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is where the family is. It doesn't have to be a home. During the war, some people lost home and were living in schools and hospitals. So for me, where the family is, that's home. I agree. My second question is, if you had to leave your home and take one thing with you as a memory, what would it be? I would say a photograph of my family in our home. That way, I can look back and remember the space and who I was there with. That's so beautiful. Give us a list of three places that people must visit in your hometown. If I were to stay in Istanbul, There are a lot of must-visit places. First, definitely the historic mosques, like the Sultan Ahmad Mosque, and the Faith Mosque, and Taksim, of course, by the Galata Tower. Those are really important places in Istanbul. What dish tastes like home to you? Grilled kibbe for sure. He's a real Aleppian. He chose the grilled kibbe, which is a very special dish in Aleppo. Yes, my mom makes it. She goes up to the rooftop and grills the meat there. His mom makes it. That's beautiful. What's a book or books that you've recommended to your friends or have wanted to read? To be honest, I don't really read, but there's a book I heard about that I want to read. It's a self-help book called I Miss the Prayer, which talks about religious practices that should be day-to-day practices because of their benefits. So this is a book I really want to read. Thank you so much, Majid, for being on Belongings. I really enjoyed getting to know you and hearing about your journey and about your story and all of your hopes for the future. We wish you all of the luck and all of the success. Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram 
at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.